Welcome to Coffee House. This is part two of our Steve Jobs biography by Walter Isaacson episode. If you haven't listened to part one, uh, what are you doing? Go listen to part one. Otherwise, we can continue on from here. We just had Steve Jobs. He had left Apple. He had started Next. Not super great logo was created, but the company wasn't doing super well. And the man himself is on the cusp of returning to Apple in January of 1997 as a part-time advisor. There were a lot of cagey aspects to his return. He did not want to come back as CEO. He refused the status. He was already CEO of Pixar at the time. But during one of the presentations, the Apple presentations, he had this kind of presentational uh, tete-a-tete with Emilio, who was apparently absolutely horrendous on stage. And, you know, Jobs had his characteristic charisma when he was talking to, you know, the tech press and whoever else was there. But Jobs, when he returned, he hated the stylus. This is something that he would say later, is that we all have, you know, 10 styluses and there's no reason to, to make another one. Of course, Apple has since made a stylus, but that was uh, after his death. And he hid the Newton. And I just remember the joke from The Simpsons where one of them, I think it was Ralph or something, wrote some message on the Newton and it didn't understand it and said something stupid. That's the one thing I know about the Newton. So anyway, Jobs, you know, like I said, he's being a, a little coy about the return. And he had a number of conditions. At one point, he demanded that the entire board resign of Apple, except one, one person he, he liked. And then he wanted to bring in Microsoft to get back on their feet, their old rival. So there were a lot of, a lot of friction on his way back. But then they hit the ground running from here. So there are a lot of things to set up. There was the Think Different campaign. It was the first pitch of this one guy in 10 years. And Steve Jobs said that he still cries when he thinks about that pitch, when he thinks about the pitch regarding Think Different. And they actually did debate, and I wondered this, I've wondered this forever, is that it wondered if they debated whether they should use the adverb, the different Lee, think differently as opposed to think different. And they did debate that, and Jobs vetoed it and said, no, think different is better, it has more punch. But so he started his Jobsian stuff here. He said that hardware and software must be tightly integrated. That was a big one, and he ended these cloners who licensed the software from Apple. And one thing here that he says, you know, he's going through uh, a bunch of layoffs. He's trying to figure out, okay, what kind of products do we have? What do we need to do? But one thing he said here that echoes, or maybe it's the other way around, that Elon Musk echoes something that Jobs said, is that people who understand what's going on, they don't need things like PowerPoints. Elon Musk said that the person who actually fixes a problem, they're going to know all the details about it. You know, they're not going to stop at the first level when it comes to discussing how they fixed a problem. And Jobs here says that if you know what you're talking about, you don't need to make a PowerPoint presentation to go through it. So he did not like PowerPoints. I appreciate that. But there were dozens of products in development at this time at Apple. And Apple was doing horribly. It was not doing well at this point. You know, Microsoft had a huge market share and Apple was just taking a beating. That's why they went back to Jobs. So they had dozens of products. And when Jobs get, gets back there, he cut 70% of the products. He says, we need to scale this way down and figure out a few products that are going to be, you know, the bread and butter, the things that are going to knock it out of the park for us. He did a whole bunch of layoffs at the time, and uh, the things that were in production, the iMac and the iBook, were the ones they really focused on. He stopped the printers and the Newton. He got rid of those projects and laid off around 3,000 people in one year. So he did not have a problem with that. That's another thing with Elon Musk. He has no problem with, with firing people. 
Then we get some talk about Johnny Ive. Of course, Johnny Ive was prominent in a lot of the videos when they talked about a lot of the uh, models of the iPhone when they were coming out. But Johnny Ive was about design first. He loved design. He loved everything about design and designing these products. With Steve's philosophy on the other side, it was a, a marriage you know, made in heaven. They were they recounted this one incident where they were out looking at just products. I've picked up this knife, looked at it, and there was something wrong with it. He didn't like, so he set it down. Jobs picked it up and looked at it and saw the same thing and put it down there and they recounted that. The problem was that you could notice this blue between the handles. There's this little bit of blue that was between the handles and they didn't like that aspect of the design. But that's kind of a precursor to what would come with the actual products that they ended up developing. So the iMac in May 1998, we're looking at the iMac, and they wanted a distinctive design, and they wanted to sell it for $1,200, and this is the one that came out with a translucent casing. So, of course, it means that you can see the things that are inside, which is something that Jobs was about, was that he wanted all the aspects of the product to look gorgeous, even if nobody would ever see it, but in this case, you would be able to see a lot of it. And there was a handle on it, and there were uh, a lot of discussions early on about the handle and how many people were actually going to need to use a handle since it was a desktop computer. But for Ive, what he said was that it makes it friendlier. It makes it gives you a means of having a relationship with the product. And you kind of understand that. You know, a lot of design talk that you hear from a lot of these, you know, geniuses when it comes to design, you can kind of shuffle it away. It's like people talking about what they taste in wine, you know. It's, it's like you don't really have access. You know, they may be talking about something legitimate or they may be just pulling it right out of their your rear end. But in this case, it does make a lot of sense that it seems like it makes it more accessible and it brings it down to earth and to some degree and gives you some kind of means of relationship with it. But the whole thing, it's an integrated process now and everybody's working on this stuff at the same time. So the different aspects of it and the marketing team and the software people, the design people, all those people are working together and using an integrated process to try to create this product. And uh, he looked to, and I can't remember the details of this. I tried to look it up just separately. J. Robert Oppenheimer apparently had this particular hiring process. So I tried to look it up, but I couldn't find details on it. But they talk about it a little bit in the book. I just didn't put it in my notes. So yes, oh, then um, they start talking about the store experience. This is part of the full integration is the fact that you can only do so much. You know, you create your product, you put it out there, and then it ends up on a, a hideous shelf in some store. And then that's the best that you can do with it. So they decided around this time that they were going to start designing a store experience. And the way that they did it was they had this warehouse and they just started building the store experience in the warehouse and they just worked on it and worked on it and worked on it over months and didn't stop until it felt comfortable. And the first store was actually not open until May 19th, 2001. And the first one ever was in Tyson's Corner, Virginia. And so now they have this idea of being able to integrate that part of the, the process as well. And obviously anybody who's been to the Apple stores, and I went to the one in New York not too long ago, but they have a, a particular design and experience that is inviting and fun to be in. It was different, you know, a few years ago when the new technology, when it was coming out, people were really excited about it. People don't really care so much anymore because there's not that much. It's just new iterations now. But back then, it really was a hub, and people would go there and spend a lot of time there and really enjoy themselves. He had this this concept, this big concept that kind of drove everything that was going on of the computer now as a hub of digital life. So that being the case, it, it spawned a bunch of new ideas, and one of those was the iPod. And, of course, this was one that really broke out, and this one that Bill Burr has a... <laughs> 
has great jokes about. But there was a simple idea. There was a simple idea of fitting 1,000 songs in your pocket. And when they were trying to design this, one thing that I've said, Johnny Ive said about it, was that most products are disposable. They look disposable. They look like something that you could toss away. And he didn't want that to be the case when it came to the iPod. So he decided that he wanted to be pure white and not black like all headphones. All headphones at the time were tended to be black. So he wanted to go the opposite and do just pure white to give it something, a kind of look that didn't look disposable. And then you have the release of the iPod on October 23rd, 2001, and it was a big, big deal. But the even bigger deal that you know so little about until you read, you know, a book like this is all the negotiating that had to take place. You've got to realize that when it comes to the music, you know, you have things like Napster, you have MP3s coming around, and so you have your product, but now you need the music, and you need the labels to get on board with the music. So this took a tremendous amount of negotiation. It was kind of the real MVP of the whole process, because you can make a a wonderful product that can hold a thousand songs in your pocket but there are a whole bunch of different creators of the music and different rights and interests when it comes to all the different kinds of music and you have to be able to figure that out so all there's this big chunk about jobs negotiating with all these different music companies to try to get this this stuff on here and be able to show that this really is the next step and be able to disseminate their product so you have the iTunes Store in 2003. Jobs was against iPod Windows compatibility at first. And one thing which I think is really important and shows a lot of wisdom when it comes to this is that Jobs specifically said that you can't be afraid of cannibalizing yourself. That was uh, There was a lot of talk about that when it came to the release of the iPad and other products is that a lot of companies would be worried about taking sales away from their own products. But if you're susceptible to being able to lose market share, if somebody brings out a new product, it's much better that you do it rather than somebody else do it, does it. So then you have the iPod mini that came out that was big and the shuffle, which got rid of the screen completely, which is Jobs' idea. And that was a hit too. So uh, you, just the iPod really took off when it came to Apple. And then back at Pixel, are, you have A Bug's Life, and there's this whole controversy around A Bug's Life. Katzenberg, who previously worked for Pixar, went to DreamWorks. And at Dreams, DreamWorks, he decided to make a movie called Ants. And people should remember, you know, this is something that happens a whole a whole lot now, is that you'll have multiple studios doing the same kind of movie and releasing them at the same time. But at this time, it was Ants and A Bug's Life. So apparently, at some point, Lasseter had told Katzenberg about all the details of A Bug's Life. And then there's this whole big negotiation thing about, you know, Katzenberg called Jobs and be like, oh, okay, well, we're will delay this or delay that or you delay yours and a bunch of other things and Jobs accusing him of stealing ideas. So eventually Ants came first, but A Bug's Life came out after and did much better in theaters. And remember Ants, it had, I think Woody Allen did the, the main voice, but then A Bug's Life, you know, was the next step for Pixar and it was a big deal. And then there were new facilities, uh, you know, there was a Pixar uh, had a building that was specifically designed to get people to mingle as opposed to just go hide away in their, their little cubicles. So there's more collaboration. So you'd have the same structure where you'd have an integrated process when it came to developing these movies. And then you have Finding Nemo, which a lot of people decried, you know, at Disney, they, they said it wasn't going to be a big deal. Then it turned out Finding Nemo was the most successful one of their movies at the time. It did exceptionally well, very, very well. And then Jobs reopened negotiations with Disney and then at one point announced that he was ending negotiations with Disney. And Disney was not doing well at this this point. They released Treasure Planet and Brother Bear. And I think we talked about that, you know, what, years ago now. We talked about those when we were doing that Disney bracket thing. But Treasure Planet and Brother Bear did not do very well and they weren't kind of the big... Disney tent poles that that Disney had hoped. 
and you have Eisner. Eisner was uh, really difficult to work with. You know, Jobs would have a, a lot of negotiations with Eisner, and it, it was difficult to get anywhere with him. Then you have the release of the video iPod, and Bob Iger becomes the, the point person at Disney, and he was a much nicer negotiator. Then eventually, Disney would purchase Pixar outright. So then, I, I don't think we brought this up yet, but the, we have a discussion about the cancer and how the cancer arose in Jobs. And he decided that he wasn't going to have surgery. He went on this carrot juice diet. He had all these diet treatments. And he did all these kinds of weird things, dietary related things, so he wouldn't have to go under a knife for about nine months until it got really, really bad. But he wouldn't eat meat. He was told he should eat meat, and he wouldn't do it. And then he did the speech at Stanford, which uh, is on YouTube, and I, I've seen it a couple of times now, where he engages in more of the kind of reality distortion when he talks about his cancer, especially. And if, if you haven't seen it, you should go listen to the speech. You know, obviously, it's one of the most important people in history. And if you know the background of what happened with his cancer, then and how he would eventually die, then listening to the speech kind of gives you a real understanding of who he was. But then, so we've got an iPod, we've got Pixar doing well, and we've got iTunes now, and then we've got the big one. I've watched this reveal many times, you know, where he talks about, he intimates that it would be three different devices, but really it was one device. It was the phone, it was the iPhone. But there was, at one point they were talking with Motorola, actually, to develop the Motorola Rocker, I think the name was, and but they just didn't like what was coming out of it. They said it wasn't going well, so they just decided we're going to build a phone. And actually, the idea for the tablet came first. The big technology they had to work on, and it took about six months for them to get this figured out, was uh, multi-touch. Being able to use multiple fingers, you know, to manipulate what's going on on a screen. And Johnny Ive said that they, that his team, his design team, had actually already been working on this in secret behind Jobs' back. But whatever the case, uh, they acquired a company called Fingerworks, and this became a bet-the-company moment. Was Everything was built on this multi-touch idea. So... As they were going along, you know, all the big telephone players at the time, they had keyboards. They had physical keyboards. So Jobs vetoed the keyboard idea, said, no, we're absolutely not having that. And they developed all these different gestures that are just kind of standard for the industry now. The swipe to open motion, the ear sensor when you raise it up to your ear, how it senses that you're trying to talk on the phone. So it makes it so you can't touch, you know, on the phone. Uh, the glass screen as opposed to like plastic or something else was another big one. And by the end of 2010, they had sold 90 million iPhones. It was a huge deal. And I had an iPhone 1. I remember that. It was it was a good time. So just remember the form factor of it, what it looked like. And I think I, I took the bus to work back in my hometown somewhere. And uh, I was listening to it. And people were asking me a bunch of questions about it. It was such a fun time. They're just asking, oh, do you have this song on it? What, is, what could it do? Of course, now it's all it's all gone now. There's no more wonder with our technology anymore. So you get the cancer that returns in 2008. He's noticeably thin at the 3GS launch. And then he took leave in 2009. And it turned out he needed a new liver. And he registered in multiple states. And I didn't know you could do this, but you can register in multiple states on multiple transplant lists. But you have to be able to get there within a certain amount of time. So one thing for Jobs is that he had a private jet, so he could get there uh, just fine. But for a lot of other people, obviously, they wouldn't have that luxury. So he eventually did get the liver transplant. Then we have the iPad. The iPad comes out, and uh, they decide to use ARM chips instead of Intel. And one of the big ideas around this was the first iPad that came out. It was just for kind of consuming content. And for Jobs and the rest of Apple, they decided that it should be more about creating content. It should be something creative instead of just consuming. 
and then you have the, the development of the app store which is a big deal and you know there's an app for that all that stuff coming around and one big aspect of of this there's always the product itself that everybody knows about and the behind the scenes negotiations that most people don't know about so in this case it was about news and Rupert Murdoch the owner of Fox they had a bunch of back and forths and negotiating about how news was going to be presented and who would have the rights to what. And especially when it come to, came to subscribers, whether the news organizations would have the right to the subscriber information of people who subscribed. Here you have the development of Android and Jobs was really mad because Android seemed to just steal a lot of the things like the, the multi-touch, the gestures like pinch to zoom, the swipe to unlock. And Jobs was really mad and ready to go nuclear on this issue. But the big conflict between the two behemoths was the idea of the open versus the closed system. And this is something, you know, obviously a similar conflict that he had with Microsoft. So Apple has their closed system and says nobody else gets to jump on it. But Android has an open system. So they have a bunch of different phones that use the Android operating system. Then you have the iPhone 4 and antenna gates. You know, you put your finger in the wrong place. It drops your calls. Uh, I remember a guy who got it when it came out and I asked him about it. And he was like, ah, I just move my finger up this way and it's fine. <laughs> but one of the big conflicts is design versus engineering. So design might want to do one thing, but engineering is the one who has to make, make sure that it's actually going to work. Then you have Mobile Me, which was a complete failure and the precursor to iCloud. And of course, iCloud's fine now. I pay for freaking iCloud because you just get more and more stuff over time and they encourage you to get more and more stuff. And then it turns out you need more and more space on the iCloud. So you just end up paying more and more money. They really lock in. Then uh, there was this meeting with Obama and Jobs got to just kind of lay into him on what he thought <laughs> had to happen. So he said you have to break teachers unions. That's a big one. I'm. You have no idea how in agreement I am there. That teachers should be treated as professionals, not assembly line workers. Oh, huge. Love it. Absolutely love it. And that schools should be open till six. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> and that they should be in operation 11 months a year. Oh, boy. But so he had a bunch of ideas about education. I actually kind of like a lot of what he had to say about it. And one thing about books, he said that books should be digital. All the books should be digital. And there should be some kind of immediate feedback when the kids are, are doing something and trying to learn something. You know, whether it's in a digital book or with the teaching, they need that immediate feedback. And that education should be manufacturing engineers. That should be something that's more emphasized in the classroom. And he actually offered to do the ads for Obama in his re-election. And he was turned down. <laughs> November 2010, you have a recurrence of the cancer. In 2011, you have new tumors. He loses his appetite. He goes on another leave in January of 2011. There was this idea at the time to get better integrated doctors. So he's trying to apply the same logic to his treatment. So he wants the doctors working together to try to figure this stuff out. By July 2011, the cancer had spread and he resigned from Apple. So the guy, you know, he came out of nowhere. And one thing he said was it was our job to figure out what people want before they know it. Okay, so we got through we got through that that big book in two parts. And I would like to do the analysis. So for me, I think it was a thorough and enjoyable book. As far as I know, Jobs never even read the book. I know he got a copy of it, but I think he <laughs> he just kind of set it aside and moved on. The biographer was fair and often harsh. It, he struck me as the kind of biographer that it's a matter of integrity, like personal integrity to make sure that he's objective or even slightly a little harsher <laughs> than objective on his subject. But the author certainly appreciated what Jobs was and was really interested in this subject of this person and did a lot of work, a lot of work. 
it's one of the most important portraits of a genius that we have. You know, contra Bill Burr, <laughs> I do think that he legitimately had a specific kind of genius that was very important when it came to tech. It did seem to make kind of imps out of his rivals. When I got done with the book, I did feel like I kind of had antipathy toward anybody he came up against. <laughs> you know, when it came to Bill Gates or Scully or uh, whoever else he came up against. It did, you know, Scully just seemed like kind of a twerp. And Bill Gates uh, seemed like a dickhead. <laughs> it's just, and that could be the treatment in the book or it could be reality. Who knows? Jobs cried a lot. I didn't realize in meetings he would cry. Uh, he was preternaturally driven. He nailed some of the most vital choices in the history of technology without a second thought. Things we now take for granted, you know, a lot of them he nailed right away. And the psychological turmoil that challenged the tech landscape and left a damaging emotional wake that was just embodied by Steve Jobs is certainly not fully understood, even by this point. So, big picture stuff. What kind of big picture stuff can we take from this? I was listening to a Jordan Peterson lecture about justice and mercy, and how too much of either becomes pathological. Jobs flirted with the pathology, the perpetual knife edge that we walk on between a thousand poisonous binaries is probably what makes us human, and how we got here in the first place. That's something that feels so, so human, is walking between poisonous binaries. Nietzsche said, man is a rope stretched between the animal and the superman a rope over an abyss. And he also said, one must have chaos in oneself to give birth to a dancing star. Both Jobs and Musk have what seem to be fundamental psychological inadequacies that stem from childhood. Adoption and abandonment for Jobs and bullying and the insanity of his father for Musk. But one thing about great men is that they seem like they are teeming with destructive energy, that they could explode and bring the world with them at any moment. But they're just holding the reins to that explosion. Elon Musk and his vicious treatment of employees and pushing every company to the verge of implosion. Steve Jobs and his personal tirades and seductive reality distortion field. We as a species have a job here, but we'll ultimately be the last animals on the road to Superman. It's bittersweet. It's bittersweet to be that vital, that important, that special in the grand scheme of evolution and the history of this planet and the history of our solar system, perhaps the history of the universe, but to kind of be the last romantic, sloppy, savage, <laughs> primate rope between animals and Superman, it's bittersweet. So anyway, I hope everybody uh, enjoyed this. I hope they enjoyed this kind of dual look at two of the, the great people in recent history, Elon Musk and Steve Jobs. And I hope we can appreciate a little bit more the kind of work that it takes to really do something revolutionary. Anyway, I hope all is well. I will see everybody on the next one. <laughs>